Hello, and welcome to the Warts and Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Russell Onatambo, and our guests today are Wemimo Abbey and Samir Go, co-founders and co-CEOs of Esusu. Esusu is a leading fintech platform providing rent reporting, property management analytics, and rental assistance to unlock financial access and stability for renters and property owners in the US. In 2023 alone, Esusu unlocked $21.9 billion in new credit activity for Esusu renters by enabling 107,000 renters establish credit scores for the first time, while helping many more with existing scores increase theirs by at least 36 points. Most recently, Esusu was valued at $1 billion in the 130 million Series B round. In 2021, Esusu was named to the Forbes FinTech 50 Most Innovative Companies list. Prior to Esusu, both Samir and Wemimo founded social enterprises and had successful corporate careers. Samir co-founded TransferNation, a nationally recognized non-profit that used technology to direct over 5 million pounds of excess food to nearly 2.5 million people in underserved communities across New York City. Prior to that, Samir worked in sales strategy and operations at LinkedIn, and he also worked at the United Nations and Venture Forum in. He received his Bachelor of Science from NYU's Stern School of Business. Wemimo, on the other hand, founded Clean Water for Everyone, a global social venture providing affordable access to clean water for 250,000 people in six countries. He also founded a data analytics company gathering data on NGOs operating in Africa, which was acquired in 2014. Prior to that, Wemimo was an M&A consultant at PwC and also worked at Accenture, the European Commission and Goldman Sachs. He regularly speaks at global conferences, has presented at the United Nations, the World Food Prize, Clinton Global Initiative, and has testified in front of the U.S. Congress on combating tech bro culture. Collectively, Wimimo and Samir have been featured in over a dozen major business publications, including but not limited to the 2020 Forbes 30 Under 30, the 2022 Fortune 40 Under 40, and the 2023 Time 100 list. Join us as we gain some insight on how Isuzu is expanding financial access across the U.S. Isuzu's growing pains and lessons learned along the way, Samir Wemimo's principles and purposeful leadership as co-CEOs and much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Samir Wemimo. Uh, we're glad to have you on the podcast. Where are you guys calling in from? Thanks so much for having us. I'm, I'm dialing in from New York. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Laura Russell. I'm calling in from Los Angeles, California. Oh, wow. We got both coasts right now. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. Coast to coast. Coast to coast. And I'm calling in from Philadelphia. So we have three big cities in there. To start with, Samir, can you tell us what Isuzu is and what services you provide currently? Absolutely, Russell. Thanks so much for this thoughtful question. So, you know, to share a little bit about what Asusu is, I think when we and I always like to take a step back and go down memory lane a little bit because it dovetails nicely into what we've actually built. And uh, Asusu really stems from our personal experiences. For myself, you know, I grew up in an immigrant family from New Delhi, India. And when we moved to the United States of America, we thought we had made it. You know, India's got over a billion people. It's tough to make a living out there. And America obviously has more opportunity. And unfortunately, we were met with a rather rude awakening when my father was mugged on his first day in the country. And we just didn't have a place for shelter. And this really set the tone for a lot of the experiences I had in my early childhood, just watching my parents work miracles without a credit score and with limited financial resources 
but still doing everything they possibly could to pave a better life for us. And uh, the simple thought I was left with was, it shouldn't be so hard for people putting their best foot forward every day to have a fighting chance. And so inspired by that, and Romimo's story, which you'll hear shortly, we founded on Asusu on this core premise that no matter where you come from, the color of your skin or your financial identity, it should never determine where you end up in life. And uh, more practically, we've built a business to kind of bring that to life, whereby we partner with owners and operators of real estate, really anyone that houses people, and we provide three core services. The first is when people pay their rent on time, we make sure that data gets reported to the credit bureaus so that renters can build an established credit the same way that mortgage owners do today. It's good for the renter because it drives on-time payments, or it's good for the landlord because it drives on-time payments, but at the same time for the renter, they can establish and improve their credit identity. Number two, when renters fall behind on rent, we pair them with 0% interest loans paid directly to the owner or operator of real estate. Once again, creating that win-win, landlords keep their cash flow healthy, but ultimately we can help families navigate a financial emergency and keep a roof over their head. And then finally, we help our partners tell their impact story, really quantifying the S part of ESG and providing data-driven metrics like how many people have established a credit score for the first time, average credit improvement, and so on and so forth. And then finally, underpinning all that, we provide the residents with a plethora of financial literacy resources and other services that they can engage with at their discretion. So that's a little bit about the why behind Asusu on my end and, uh, and our platform. Thanks, Samir. Um, just over to you, Imam. I'm curious to hear also your foundation story to Asusu. And maybe while you're at it, could you also share, you know, give us an order of magnitude of how big the problem you are solving with Asusu is. Absolutely. As you know, my story from an Asusu perspective stems from a personal experience. Um, I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. I lost my father at the age of two, and I was raised by my mother and two very spirited sisters. And one thing my mother fundamentally believed in was the importance of education. Uh, she afforded my school fees to one of the finest high schools in the land, and that's what led me to this magical place called America. I immigrated from 80-degree weather in Lagos to negative 22 degrees in Minnesota, which was a character building experience. And during that transition, something important happened. My mother and I did not have a credit score. We walked into one of the biggest banks in Minneapolis to borrow money, and we turned away and had to go borrow money from a predatory lender at over 400% interest rate. My mother sold my dad's wedding ring, borrowed money from church members, and that's how we got started in America. So really inspired by that experience, and Samir, as which you just heard, we started a SUSU on three core premises. No matter where you come from, the color of your skin, and particularly your financial identity should never determine where you end up in the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. And there I say anywhere in the world. Problem we're addressing, particularly from a resistance standpoint, switch the current capitalist system on its head. Well, we're creating a new world of justice capitalism. But if we take a step back, what does that mean? Number one, there are over 45 million people in this country that do not have a credit score. And the average debt in America is around $92,000. If you do that math, you can unlock over $4.1 trillion in the market. Furthermore, renters encompass over 36% of Americans. They pay on an average $1,100 to their landlords every month. If you do that math, right, that's over $1.44 trillion going to landlords, but less than 10% of that data is not captured. So what ASUSU is doing is simple, giving credit where credit is due and trying as much as possible to make people 
visible to the American financial system. Those 45 million people that have a, you know, no credit score right now or are financially invisible, those are the people that we wake up every day to give a fighting chance and address this $4.1 trillion market opportunity. And we're just getting started. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing both your stories. Um, these are very fascinating stories coming from uh, India, coming from Nigeria, um, you know, both very inspirational stories about sort of um, sort of immigration story into the U.S. Uh, I'm curious, having such, you know, different starting points, um, could you talk to us about how you guys met and what was the moment you decided to, to get together and build this product? Absolutely. So Wamimo and I have had the good fortune of knowing each other for over a decade now. Um, I, I actually first met Wamimo in 2013 uh, when we both attended the Clinton Global Initiative University. And at the time, we were actually already social entrepreneurs working on different businesses. And so Wamimo had founded a company called Clean Water for Everyone, really focused on building water infrastructure in countries around the world. Uh, and for myself, I had founded a company called Transformation. Uh, really focused on redistributing extra food from events to communities in need. And uh, we met at this conference and just became good friends. You know, we kind of had a mutual respect, made introductions for each other, and sort of started rooming together at future events and whatnot to save costs and to spend some more time together. And then we both had a similar journey where we ended up spending some time in corporate America. So for me, predominantly, that was at LinkedIn. When we both spent some time at Goldman Sachs and then PricewaterhouseCoopers. And we reconnected on specifically December 11th, 2015 at a chocolate shop called Max Brenner's in New York City. And we just had a great conversation about life. And, you know, I think the kind of takeaway was we're really enjoying what we're doing in corporate America. We're making money for the first time. We're learning a lot. And our parents are definitely really happy with where we ended up. Uh, but it wasn't fulfilling us. And really, you know, our heart was in building something that was bigger than ourselves and could really give back to the communities we come from. And so at that point, we elected to start building a SUSU. I think we officially started on Christmas Day 2015. We started building the company while in corporate America for the next couple of years. And then when we saw enough traction, quit our jobs at the start of 2018 to focus on it full time and have been you know, operating it now daily for the past six years, give or take. And through that process, you know, Mimo and I have been through everything under the sun. I'm proud to say that not only my you know, business partner, work husband, but also my best friend. And uh, we were each other's best man at our weddings last year. So, you know, we've been through a lot on the personal and professional side. And it's been an incredible journey. Wow, that's amazing. Um, really good to hear that. Well, Mara, over to you. You know, you, you talked about giving credit where credit is due and that, you know, less than 10% of rental data is captured currently. It must have been a huge task to get the credit bureaus and um, all the institutions to start recognizing that data. Could you talk us through your experience um, convincing the credit bureaus to accept rental data into their credit scoring? Absolutely. Working alongside the credit bureaus to accept rental data was a long, or what we like to call it, purposeful, painful process. Now, to take a step back, there's been legislation by Congress that encourages the collection of rental data so renters can get credit where credit is due. There's also a process which involves combining over 4,400 rules and regulation to make sure this data is properly reported at scale. And there's often this rhetoric about the credit bureaus that, you know, they are not collecting the information efficiently, but there's a lot of work that goes into collecting this information. 
You want to make sure the data is accurately reflected. You want to make sure you don't violate any privacy act and you want to do it in the most ethical way possible. So we are proud to walk alongside the credit bureaus to furnish this data into the consumer rating agencies. And what that means when we go to market is we work with landlords or property managers to make sure we capture the data, transform it in compliance with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Privacy Act, the Glambaile Act, the Patriot Act. So we're taking the right information and then reporting it into the consumer rating agency in technical formats called Metro 2. So this took a lot of collaboration. And if we take a step back, it also involved a lot of government support, right? There's often this rhetoric that, you know, governments is antagonistic towards business and businesses feel as though government is a blocker. What we've been able to do is essentially create this collaborative opportunity whereby we create a win-win. A win for the credit bureaus because now we can help people be more visible in the American financial system. A win for governments because a lot of renters now and a lot of people are not left behind and they can participate in the American financial system. And a win for the landlord because folks are encouraged to pay their rent on time. And above all, a win for everyday renters, everyday Americans, so they are seen and can get access to quality financial products. Our motto at ASUSU has always been, I'll continue to be, no one left behind. And we always believe and still believe that no matter where you come from, should nef- definitely not determine where you end up in this wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. So the collaboration with the credit bureaus, you know, has been long, um, hard, took over 24 months for us to do it well, but it's something we're incredibly proud of and gives us a strong competitive edge in the marketplace. That is very impressive. Um, Samir, over to you. Can you talk us through um, what your tech stack, what your tech stack looks like currently? So you obviously connect with credit bureaus, landlords, renters. There's a lot of different stakeholders involved, and you have to connect them all together. Um, what does the unifying tech stack look like to enable all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I'll share as much as I can without getting into anything uh, confidential. Um, but essentially, if you think about the underlying tech platform, it's essentially a unified database, right? And what we're trying to do is, you can think of it almost like a central processing unit. We're trying to ingest data from a number of different sources. The first set of sources is really the property management software, RealPage, Yardi, MRI, Entrada, ResNet, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, they encompass close to 90% of the market now. And we had to build API connections into all of those property management software so that we can pull data into our system. That data is then kind of supplemented by any data that we get from residents interacting with our mobile application or our, our resident portal, as we like to call it. And so those data points are also fed into that master data warehouse. We also do get certain information from the credit bureaus. That's kind of pulled into this centralized processing unit or master da- data warehouse, so to speak. And, uh, and then we also have some data that comes in from our rent relief applications as well. Right. And then we supplement that with additional data sources. And what we're trying to do essentially is create a unified financial identity for our residents. So that way in the future, if a renter wants to get a home loan, a car loan, a educational loan, they can say, hey, Asusu, can you help me get a better interest rate in the market? Can you underwrite this for me? Obviously, all of this will be consumer permissioned, but we can't do that unless we actually have that sort of central warehouse that stores all that data and connects all these disparate sources into a centralized 
line, right? And then that data is reported into the credit bureaus as well so that people can establish and build credit as will be more alluded to. And so that's essentially the kind of underlying technology we've built, the central warehouse connecting all this data. We're also exploring use cases of things like artificial intelligence. And as you can tell, there's there's multiple pieces to our tech stack, right? So there's a great B2B kind of behind the scenes piece. And then there's also a renter facing platform um, that people are interacting with every day, a marketplace of solutions where people can connect to other financial products, et cetera. And so those are kind of the two distinct pieces of our tech stack, the back end enterprise and then the sort of renter facing stuff. Um, as far as technologies go, we use the stuff that you know you would expect Amazon Web Services, those sort of tools and technologies. Thank you. That's that's so helpful to to know and understand and for, for our listeners to to get a better sense of how this works. Wamama, well, over to you. Um this is to start working with related, one of the largest private owners and operators of affordable housing in the US. Can you tell us the story of how you started working with Related and um, how your n- relationship has evolved since then? Yes, Related as in special place in our hearts because they were one of the organizations that gave us a fighting chance to prove um, our products in the marketplace. We started engaging with Related in 2019 at the infancy of the company. We continued further conversation with them through 2020. And the premise and collaboration related, which is one of the largest owners and operators of real estate in the country, um, was to help create an ecosystem where we create a one-stop shop for residents' financial help, where renters can build their credit scores as well as get access to other arguments and services. We had the good fortune of working with a gentleman there called Jeff Brodsky and other members of the team that really guided us and taught us about the space. Um, and number one, going through this process, we had to create a security system that has the pastoral of a publicly traded company. Number two, we also had to make sure that we had the right communications in place for renters so they know what we are doing and not just a random company off the streets. Number three, we had to make sure that we earned the trust of the renters, which required, in some cases, myself and Samir going to properties to go explain what the company does. So Related was really hands-on. They were really thoughtful and above all, created a blueprint and a launchpad for us to scale our initiatives um, and products. Now, the owners and operators within the ECOSU ecosystem today has over 5 million rental units, over a hundred billion dollars in gross lease volume. And without that initial collaboration and related, those lessons learned, the mentorship of people like Jeff Brodsky, like Leila James and others within the ecosystem, we will not be where we are today. And we do not take these things for granted. Um, we like to talk about the facts that we stand on the shoulders of many um, that have made us what we are today, now a billion dollar company. Um, and we stand on the shoulders of their guidance and for their compassion and for their grace and then for the technical know-how also. And it's really all about what ISUSU stands for, which is simple. You know, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, it takes the relateds of the world, it takes the government, it takes the credit bureau for us to go far together. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just on that note, 
Would you mind expanding on what Isuzu means? I know you just touched on it, but I uh, would love for, you know, to give our audience a, a bit of a broader explanation of what Isuzu stands for. Yeah, happy to expound. You know, Isuzu really stems from this idea of collectivism. You know, we live in an individualistic world, but we believe in the premise that we need to go far together, not going at life alone. So Isuzu stems from a West African Yoruba word that essentially means, you know, if you want to go fast, you go alone. And if you want to go far, you go together, predicated on a collective group um, resource pulling effort. Um, and that's really been one of the core pillars of what we do at Isuzu. This idea of forward together, in some cases, is incredibly hard. Um, this idea of, you know, not leaving folks behind. And this idea of trying as much as possible to make sure that DNA and that thought process of collectivism is not only, you know, imbibed in the regulators, we have the good fortune to work with, you know, our customers, um, our colleagues at ASUSU will make all the magic happen. And above all, society at large, as the mark we want to leave in the world is we can really do things together. Um, but when we go at it alone, we leave a lot of importance facet out. Wow, that's very inspirational. Thank you for sharing. Samir, over to you. Isusu has had a pretty exciting fundraising journey to this point. I know you, you guys have mentioned having over 300 rejections from VCs in the past and all the way to receiving investments from the likes of Serena Williams, uh, receiving a $130 million Series B that valued Isusu as a unicorn and many more. Can you take us through your journey fundraising for Susu from your seed round until now? And could you share any of the lessons you've captured over that time? Yeah, thanks a lot, Russell. So we've had a, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for where we've landed as a, as a company with our fundraising journey, but it certainly has not been pretty. You know, when we first tried to raise capital back in 2019, you know, nobody wanted to take a bet on us. As you alluded to, over 326 people said no to us. And yes, we do keep score. And um, it was it was definitely a tough time because you know all those rejections meant that well, Mimo and I had to take on more and more personal leverage. Uh, and so by the time we raised our capital, we were over a hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt. You know we were couch surfing our universities had sent us to collections. And uh, there's one story in particular that always resonates, which is our Denny story. And um, you know while we were in this fundraising journey, we signed our first customer at the University of Minnesota, and we had to travel to Crookston. And uh, sadly, we didn't have enough money to buy, uh, stay at a hotel. And so we elected to try to spend the night at a Denny's, you know, and it was in Fargo, North Dakota. It was negative 20 degrees out. We get to this Denny's and we have a flight out the next day. We're typing away on our computer and, you know, because we're not super people, we drove off somewhere around 2 a.m. And uh, the store manager kindly but firmly comes up to us and lets us know that Denny's is not a place for loitering and we need to leave. And uh, we had to beg the guy to like let us call a cab and get to the airport. And when we got to the airport, you know, uh, there's this elderly lady sitting in a massage chair and she takes one look at us and says, you guys need this more than I do. And she gets up and gives us her seat. And that just gives you a sense of our state. Uh, the following day, we flew to San Francisco where we tried to meet with some investors who were five blocks down from Mark Zuckerberg. And, uh, you know, the takeaway for me from that experience was always proximity. One of the things that we have the good fortune of doing at Asusu is being so close to both ends, both ends of the extreme, right? We spend time working in, in public housing, low-income neighborhoods, seeing what it's really like to be um, 
an everyday person in this country. And at the same time, we have the good fortune of sort of walking into rooms with unbelievable amounts of wealth and trying to build a little bit of connection between those two worlds. And it always keeps us grounded. Um, so that's always a fun story to share. Fortunately, shortly after that experience, we raised our seed round. Uh, that was led by Acumen Americas and a host of other folks. They put in you know, collectively $1.6 million and uh, we, we got started on our journey. And I'd say from there, every round successively got a little bit easier, but certainly had its ups and downs. And as you mentioned, you know, most recently we raised our Series B round of financing in January of 2022. We raised $130 million led by SoftBank, valuing the company at a billion dollars. And, um, you know, it's been one heck of a journey. If I could share some lessons learned, you know, they'd really come down into a few different buckets. One, fundraising is all about your mental energy. So really be intentional if you're a founder about preserving your mental energy. Don't get too excited. Don't get too low. Just keep it steady until the money hits the bank account. People are able to pull out at any time. And so really stay level-headed and do as much as you can in an automated fashion so that you don't end up getting too drained from the process because it is a tough process. Uh, the second thing I'd share is um, it's all about the relationships, right? So you never know, you know, who could come into your round now or in the future. And so, you know, our MO has always been to just be a class act. Even if someone says no to us, even if they don't believe in the business, even if they yell at us in a pitch meeting, we're still going to treat them with respect, right? And that's served us well throughout this process where even the people who didn't come in and are around still wanted us to win. And if someone reached out to them, they would still say, hey, you know, Samir and Mimo are good people. And I, we didn't end up making the bet on them, but like they're good people and I, I, I want them to win, right? And you, you have no idea how far that sort of, re- that kind of carries um, within the industry. And, and then the third piece is really more tactical, right? Treat your fundraise like a sales funnel. Have your list of investors, you know, have people that can make introductions to them, have your pre-templated emails, have a data room ready, have your financials ready, do the legwork in advance. So that way, as you're interacting with investors, there's as little back and forth as possible. The process is efficient. You waste less time. You're not recreating materials. Those sort of things all account for something. And then finally, I would say when you have the good fortune of doing so, raise money when you can be opportunistic, right? Like it's the worst feeling in the entire world is raising money when your back is against a wall and you have no choice. And so one thing that we've tried to be intentional about is never putting ourselves in that position again. Even today, we have years of runway. We're not going to raise capital when we need to raise money. We're going to raise capital when it's convenient. And what I mean by convenient is when there's investors who are interested, the market is favorable and we can raise money quickly. But we're never going to try to raise money again when we're desperately trying to raise cash. And so that's a luxury for an early stage founder. But as you have the opportunity to raise capital, I think the best thing that founders can do is control their own destiny so they can always raise money from a position of strength, not a position of deficit. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's very real um hearing both the struggle and the difficulty and the precision of counting 326 rejections to all the success that we see in the news in the in the press releases and all of that so thank you so much for sharing that full picture and, and full honesty about what the experience has been and what you've taken out from it so i think a lot of people can can learn and benefit from that now you mentioned that you have a couple of years of runway and you're in a good position just looking forward, what do you expect ASUS to look like five years from now? What is the pathway coming up that you can share? I'll put this over to you, Ramana. ASUSU in five years. When we created ASUSU, we have this thing called the ASUSU Master Plan, which talks about 
the change we want to see in the world, it encompasses our vision statement, which is to leverage data to bridge the racial wealth gap. Um, you know, it also includes our strategy uh, to make sure we unlock quality financial product uh, for those medium income households. And what that journey really is all about is threefold. Exclusive today is reporting on-time rental data into the credit bureaus to help people establish or build their credit scores. We also, through a sister charity organization, stable loan funds, when people cannot afford to pay rent, um, they get access to zero interest loans paid directly to their landlord and doing so while creating a win-win construct. The renter wins, the landlord wins, so now they can pay their mortgage, and society at large wins because we're not solving homelessness backwards. The next vertical for us, as we think about the next five years, is building what we call a SUSU wealth. A SUSU wealth then becomes aligned to that strategic priorities that we have, which is to unlock quality financial product. So we're going to create a marketplace of quality financial products. If our renters now that have established or built credit scores want to go get a mortgage, they can get access to that mortgage. If they want to get an auto loan, they can get access to auto loan. If they want to get access to other quality financial products, they can get access to it. And we already seen encouraging data around that today. For the people we've established or built credit scores for and see what they've gone on to get, We've unlocked now over $20 billion in credit activities, over $14 billion of which is mortgages. Right? That's powerful. Mortgages are traditionally the biggest driver of wealth in this country. So when you think about our old vision, it is seldom so you see an organization or a company really fulfilling its true not stat. And that's what we're proud of. And that's what we're looking forward to. Taking everyday Americans on this journey of financial identity and visibility towards a SUSU wealth, which is all about getting access to quality financial um, product and eventually being the ultimate source of a SUSU financial identity to make sure folks can really fulfill what we stand for, that no matter where they come from, their inadequate financial identity will not determine where they end up. So they have access to a comprehensive set of data to leave their financial best. So it's simple, taking people from identity towards wealth building and a comprehensive data set is something that we're really, really passionate about and we're just getting started. I love it. And it's about not leaving anyone behind in, in this wealth creation journey, especially as America, you know, gets better and better, more efficient, and uh, creates more value for for its citizens. So um, I think that's that's a really great story. Now, I want to go on to leadership. Being co-CEOs of a startup company is pretty uncommon. Can you tell us a bit more about how you work together and split responsibilities effectively? Great question, Russell. So you know, as I alluded to before, I think one thing that's important to touch on is first the strength of the relationship between Wabibo and I, right? It's not only a relationship that works professionally, but it's one that works personally. Um, we like to joke that it's like a marriage, but like everything, it takes effort and investment and time and thoughtfulness. And so 
you know, the attributes that make it work are one, we both check our ego at the door, right? It's not about being superior, right? We firmly believe in like ethos of a susu that we can go further together. Number two, right? There's a healthy appreciation for each other's pedigree and experiences. And so we like to think of it like majors and minors. My experience is more on operations, sales operations and whatnot, when people has a lot of pedigree and, you know, corporate M&A, finance and similar sort of activities. And so when we're having conversations in our kind of prior experiences or domain expertise, we'll defer to the other on that, but still be involved from an input perspective, right? And then number three, what it takes is unequivocal trust, which is critical because no matter what Wamimo says, I fundamentally believe that he has the company's best interests at heart and my best interests at heart. And so that makes it a very easy place to come to a healthy conversation, even when we have a disagreement, right? Because ultimately I know that what he wants is the best interest for all of us as a collective. And that's a very healthy place to have a discourse from. The things we do in the rare events that we have a disagreement, most people think we share the same brain. That's not factually true. It's just, we're very intentional to make sure that we adhere to this perspective of disagree, but commit something that Jeff Bezos per kind of champions at Amazon, right? And it's the idea that, hey, you know, ultimately we might disagree on a topic, but when we come to a conclusion, we're both 110% in. And if that idea works, we both share the win. And if that idea fails, we both share the failure. Ultimately, our job is to make sure it works, right? And there's no such thing as like, oh, this was Wamimo's idea and it didn't work and that's what happened. Or this was Samir's idea and it didn't work. That's what happened, right? Because if you're keeping score like that, the relationship will fail, right? So there's a lot of thought and intentionality that goes into it. Ultimately, we believe that two heads is stronger than one. We all have our good days. We all have our bad days. We can watch out for these other's blind spots. And we can always make sure that whether we win or lose, we do it together. And that's really what makes the relationship excel and why it's uh, an item of strength, even if it's uh, contrarian. And uh, what's been cool to see is more and more companies have started to adopt it. You know, when we first started doing it, it was very sort of uh, rare. And I think now more companies are starting to recognize the value that a co-CEO model can create. Wow. wow. That's, that's really, really good to hear. And, and I, I think that's very impactful. I also very much like Jeff Bezos' idea of disagree and commit. I think it's a phenomenal uh, idea in teams and in leadership. You know, it's just instrumental into into creating huge success. When Mimo, over to you, can you talk to us about what kind of culture you embody in Esusu and how you lead through culture? Thanks a lot, Russell. You know. Culture is utterly important um, to build any successful organization because it's truly about the people and you need to build the company on the premise that it is bigger than you. Um, and that's something we always try to embody, particularly um, at ACSU. So one of the biggest things that we fundamentally believed in is, you know, People are our most important assets, and without our people, there's nothing that we can do. When we started CCO, um, I, a few years into it, we got advice from the likes of Jeff Winner, the former CEO of LinkedIn, and really talked about the importance of this thing called visions of values. You know, your vision statements, you're not that. Your mission statements, what you're trying to accomplish today, but could change. And then your values, um, and then operating principles, which is how your people show up. And now you hire, fire, or promote or elevate folks. And that's something that we've stayed strong 
and stayed consistent with particularly at Isisu. Um, and I will tell you, uh, it has been incredibly hard because there are situations where you have strong people uh, within the organization, but you have to make tough choices if they are cancers to the culture. You know, if you have, you know, a great employee that's an individualist that's not thinking about the greater collective, um, you have to make some tough decisions if they can't out to the culture. So some of the key ones that really resonates with me is number one, gratitude, making sure our employees and us understand the fact that we've been given the good fortune to do the work we do on behalf of our clients, on behalf of our shareholders, and our focus as a mission-based company to serve society at large. You know, another one is compassionate inquiry, not just jumping into conclusions, rather making sure that you put yourself in people's shoes, right? It is easy for you to be empathetic towards something, but compassion takes it a step further and saying, look, if I were in, if I were in that person's shoes, what would I do, right? I'm not jumping into conclusions. And in a very remote, every environment, which we've seen manifested in the past few years, sequel to COVID, there's a lot of challenges with communication. And we do have our own fresh air and we're by no means perfect. You know, another one is forward together. You know, like this, like the meaning of a susu, which is if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you fundamentally have to go together. There are a lot of things that we do at Isusu, particularly that takes a lot of consensus building to get done. It might be easy for myself and Samia to just make decision off the whim, or we make sure we go through a meticulous process to get buy-in from our colleagues, because ultimately, we are the platform, not necessarily the show. Our colleagues are the show. We need to create a conducive environment for, for them to thrive and be successful in their endeavors. So those are some of the top three that resonates with me. We have a bunch of them um, on, our, on our website. Um, but the last one I would say, which really stands the test of time, particularly given what we do at Isisu, and it's built on the concept of justice capitalism, is doing well and doing good is not mutually exclusive. And it's purposeful profit at Isisu, right? We created a mission-based company that is focused on loads of medium income people, but we've also done well from a financial performance standpoint. And we've also raised over $130 million that value the company at over a billion dollars, right? We're keeping people in their hands. We're helping them establish and build their credit scores. We're helping them get access to quality financial product and making money, fostering strong relationships. That's what we stand for. And really solidifying this idea that you can do well and do good, and by no means, and let me be very clear, by no means, those things are not mutually exclusive. So, these are some of the things that resonate with myself and Samir, particularly going on this journey and building it. I'm all very, very proud about what the team has been able to accomplish, the impact we have on society, and trust me, Isusu's best days are still ahead. When we were in Samir, those are fantastic values and very inspirational to hear about. I think um, anybody would be proud to work for a SUSU and to be associated with a SUSU, understanding, once they understand those values. Um, just as we close out, uh, we'd like to end with a fun question about our guests. So for both of you, what is something that, what is something about you that not many people would know about? 
Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the fun question. You know, um, it's probably the hardest one of the bunch to answer. But I think for me, one thing that people might not know is that I actually love to cook. Um, it's what I enjoy doing in my spare time. And in the future, if I wasn't a social entrepreneur or building something with Wamibo, I maybe would want to try being a chef or something like that. But uh, I don't think I'm going anywhere anytime soon. But being a chef, making a cookbook sounds pretty fun as well one day. That's amazing. What's your go-to cuisine? I like to mix it up, to be honest. I uh, I make a really good enchilada. That's been a go-to recently. Wow. Well, Thank you. One thing that yeah, one thing that people probably don't know that I, I don't talk about a lot is I was my career was actually gonna go be to play in um professional football or soccer, like we uh, like Americans like to call it. Uh I was recruited at a very young age to play professional football, but my mother said if you don't go to school, um, I'm going to disown you and you're not my son anymore. So, you know, I chose the, I chose going to school and I guess everything worked out from that. So I think that's something a lot of people do not know. I love it. That, that is actually very unique. And um, I, you clearly chose peace in this case. Or who knows, I might have been Lionel Messi, um, but I'm grateful for the work we get to wake up and do every day despite the trials and tribulations of building a company, uh, you know, it has strengthened our resolve and made me um, a better human being and see world from an expanded intellectual frame of reference. So no regrets, um, just an interesting counterfactual. That's amazing. Honestly, on behalf of all fintech enthusiasts, I am glad that Samir, you did not pursue your uh, cooking career and Mimo, you did not pursue your football career. Um, and we would not have had Isusu and uh, would not have had sort of such an amazing company to, to celebrate. So thank you all for making these choices and glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Russell. Such a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Russell. Take good care and really look forward to a lot of your success in life. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, you can subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Russell Matambo.